Club pianist by night, Juilliard graduate fellow by day, Gibson claimed to have coined the phrase hipster sometime in the 30s and would take it on as his own nickname soon after. Who Put the Benzedrine in Mrs. Murphy's Ovaltine was released by Musicraft in 1944. It's a little play on the Irish folk song Who Put the Overalls in Mrs. Murphy's Chowder, but that tune never got anyone blacklisted, which this one did for Gibson that year. He'd recover, but it would take time, over a quarter century actually, when he'd resurface in the 1970s playing blues rock. Soundbeat is produced at the Belfer Audio Archive, Syracuse University Libraries. I'm Brett Barry. You miss your woman, and I miss my man too. Hey everybody, this is Glenna Bell, and you're listening to 90.1 FM KPFT Houston. This is your girl Skyla Dawn from Damage Control and Beats and Buzz with Skyla Dawn. You are now listening to 90.1 KPFT Houston, and if you tune in Friday night at 9 p.m., you'll get to hear me as a guest. I'm on the other side of the mic, I guess you could say. Friday night, 9 p.m., The Prison Show. Tune in. Hello, Houston. Live from the KPFT studios, it's the Houston Hour with Houston historian and TV's Mr. McKinney and Heidi Vaughn of Heidi Vaughn Fine Art. Now, sit back and relax as we bring you an hour of all things arts, entertainment, history, and Houston happenings. Here's Mr. McKinney. Hello, Houston. It is Friday, March 1st. It's Mr. McKinney with Mr. McKinney's Historic Houston and the Houston Hour Radio Show coming to you on the KPFT Airways with my awesome co-host, Heidi Vaughn with Heidi Vaughn Fine Arts. Say hello, Heidi. Hi, Houston. Hi, Mr. McKinney. Well, hey, I am thrilled because we are kicking off Women's History Month. I do the Houston History Buzz Women's History Tour every single weekend, and it's so popular, so excited. And I love the fact that we dedicated the month of March, as Heidi and I have, to making sure that we showcase amazing women here in Houston on the arts and history side throughout our city. Heidi, who do we have on the arts side? Well, I'm super excited. We're going to have my friend Jenny Ash. She's the executive director of Art League Houston. Oh, that's a big deal. This is a really big deal. We've never had her on the show. Yeah, it's real cool because she's one of the busiest people in Houston. Oh, yeah. And she's a ball of energy, too. We had her in the green room. She's just keeping me running in stitches. So we're thrilled to be able to have Jenny on the show a little later on. On the history side, we have with us Melanie Johnson. It's kind of our CEO, executive director show, because Melanie Johnson is one of the co-founders of a very important TV station back in the day here in Houston. And she's a publisher, and she's somebody who's making waves all throughout the city. So we're going to learn about her and Jenny's story. But Heidi, what do we have on the arts calendar? Well, I know you're such a fan of the Alley Theater. Yes. So I thought I would talk about the nerd. Nerd. I kind of have a thing for nerds. This is a classic <laughs> play. People may not have seen this. You may have heard of it. And often done in community colleges and in schools, high schools. And so this is a chance to see a professional version oh, of this. Yeah. So you can't miss. It's a very funny play by Larry Hsu about an up-and-coming architect who invites a stranger into his home, a hopeless nerd who won't leave. I think if you're in the mood for something that will make you laugh, this is it. And guess what's coming up next week? Photo Fest. It opens on March. March 9th, it'll be up through April 21st. Photo Fest is the largest photography festival in the world because this is Texas. It's huge. It's every other year. I think the last one, it was maybe at 70 venues around town. All the museums will have things, galleries and pop-ups. This year's theme is called Critical Geography. It is about the traditional Western and historical understandings of geography and how they are influenced by social, economic, and political forces. And of course, I've got a show coming up at the gallery too. I'm going to have John Dyer. If you've seen his super iconic images of Selena, the Tejano superstar, he's done those which have been exhibited at museums all over America as well as he's done he's done great photography of Texas including at the King Range. Oh, that's a big deal. And you can go to HeidiVonFineArt.com to get more information about all the shows that are happening here including the 
one that's right in the middle of PhotoFest. I love that. Well, you know, folks, I've got my list over here. We, Heidi, good and bad news. The good news is people love the show because they contributed. The not so good news is that we did not reach our goal. We're $248 short of our winter pledge drive goal. That means that someone out there right wow, now. Wow, we came close. We, we, did, we came pretty close. I thought we'd go over and I was hoping we'd go oh. over. And I just think that there's people out there that do is love it, this show. Is it too late? It's never too late. It's never too late to go to kpft.org and go ahead and give. It still counts towards our overall contributions we make throughout the year. Is it too late to get your name on a brick? It isn't too late, actually. There's different cycles and phases of the bricks. So you may not get your name on this particular cycle, but if you do it now, if you contribute now, then you'll be on the very next cycle when the bricks get put in. So it's one of those things where it's better to do it sooner than later because you'll get... And there's not that many bricks left. The courtyard is only so big, folks. So once they sell those bricks all out, they'll be all gone. What does your brick say? My brick says Mr. McKinney's Historic Houston, and then I've got another brick coming of the Houston Hour. So I think- Thank and, you. Yeah, yeah. And mine says Heidi Vaughn Fine Art. Hey, it's perfect. It can say whatever you want it to say, <laughs> and that is the easy way to go ahead and make a lasting legacy and support KPFT. It really makes a difference. So kpft.org, if you can make a $248 contribution, you're an angel. If you can make a $20 contribution and get five more friends to do that, that's even helpful as well. Just send the link out. If you've been a past guest in the show, for example, and you're listening now to somebody else in the show and you want to give, that's an easy way to do that too. We always love our guests that ask us, what can they do for us? They really appreciate being on the show. I do appreciate that when that happens. Yeah, it's just so nice. I, we see their names in the list, for example, like, oh my gosh, they were on the show two months ago. They were on the show last year. And they listen because they heard our cry and our plea for people You know, supporting. I don't think I've told you this before, but I have met people who tell me that they've never missed a show. I love that. I love that too. It's so flattering. Yeah. Well, never miss a chance to give folks. So go to kpft.org because we need that. Well, Heidi, we shouldn't waste any more time. We should get started with our very first guest. Thank you, Mr. McKinney. I am very excited to introduce our first guest. Jenny Ash is the executive director of Art League Houston. And Art League Houston is one of the oldest arts organizations in Houston. It might be the oldest we're going to find out. But some of the very important artists who've had retrospectives at Art League Houston include Trenton Doyle Hancock, George Smith, Jesse Lott, Amy Blackmore, Forrest Prince, Kermit Oliver, Ed Wilson, Mary McCleary. I know I've been involved with collectors exhibitions with Stephanie Smither, Judy Scott Nyquist, and more exhibitions with Aaron Parasat, Mel Chin, Howell Rock Projects, Rachel Hecker. I'm sure the list goes on. I can't wait to talk about so much of this. Jenny Ash, welcome to the Houston Hour. I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> Great. Well, how long have you been at Art League? So I first started Art League back in 2011. It's been almost 12 or 13 years. And wow, I feel like so much has sort of changed over the past decade. But I started originally as the exhibition coordinator. And before that, I had been working at Anya Tisch Gallery. And so that I was, did not know that. That was like my first major introduction to Houston because I actually moved here in 2009. So I really did didn't know anybody at all and so I was looking online just to see the different galleries that were in town and I loved Anya's kind of approach which was combining mm-hmm. local Texas artists with European artists mm-hmm. and because I was moving directly from London I was like wow this would be like such a great opportunity for me to sort of merge those two interests and also learn about local artists and well so- I think that makes a lot of sense I love her gallery I have a super high opinion of her I know she's been very successful as a gallery, but you're right. It is a mix of Texas art and European art. Mm -hmm. And I I think she spends a lot of time in Europe. Yeah. And you moved to Houston from London? Yeah. I had been going to school for undergrad and grad school in London. And then when I finished grad school, I decided that it was time to get out of the city. And my family had actually moved to Houston about 10 years prior. So I moved to Houston then. And originally I went to school actually to be a practicing artist myself. Like I was interested in painting and printmaking. And it was when I started working in the gallery at Anya Tisch Gallery that I started realizing that I got way more satisfaction from working with these amazing artists on their projects than I ever did on my own. Oh, how interesting. And so that sort of opened up this new avenue, which was like, wow, I can kind of participate in this art making experience, but not be the art maker. I I'll can tell be- you, I totally relate to that. What I learned in art school is that I'm not an artist. <laughs> and I actually did it only briefly, but I did it someplace very cool. I was at a university 
in Aix-en-Provence in the south of France oh, in wow. the 80s. Nice. And I took a studio class at a school called Leo Marschutz, which is next to Cezanne Studio. And I'd always loved art history. But I mean, I think if I were really meant to be an, an artist, I would have been making art from a very young age. And I was not. But what I learned when I was there is a whole lot about technique. I learned how to look. Mm-hmm. I learned a lot about line, form, mm-hmm. balance, color, all kinds of things. But I definitely also realized that I didn't want to make it. And I think mm-hmm. my strong suit, too, is helping others. And someone's got to be the one who really appreciates it and helps make it more accessible for other people. And that's what you do. Exactly. And I think part of, I guess, one of my strengths, kind of like what you're talking about, is thinking like an artist, because I think what being able to work with artists on different projects, like there's timelines that maybe if you'd never worked as an artist, you would think timeline is this conventional thing where everything needs to be finished two weeks beforehand, that kind of stuff. And as you know, art making doesn't work that way. And so the idea that you're an art facilitator thinking as an artist, you understand time in a different way. And I feel like artists appreciate that when you're working on projects. Absolutely. We were talking before about Susan Budge, who's an artist I represent, who has taught at Art League and who I believe also got two kilns donated to Art League. Mm -hmm. And she's super prolific, mostly ceramic artist. And for my last show with her, in the weeks leading up to the show, she woke up every day at three in the morning and started working. And I know my friend McKay Otto does something similar, waking up at four in the morning when he has a show coming Mm -hmm. up. And it's not that they hadn't already done a lot of work already. It's just they're so, I think, on high alert. And I can tell when I'm representing an artist and they're getting a little funny, I might say, like, I think you need to spend some more time in the studio because Mm -hmm. it is like a good therapy time for them and they're working things out and they're getting in the zone and and all that. And I loved like starting the job at Art League because it really introduced me to a lot of local artists but also we have three or four different gallery spaces so the schedule was that I was working with three to four different artists every eight weeks to produce a show that's a lot it's a lot and we also only back then had like a week between each show so it was like half a week to take down half a week to put up yeah we do that too but I mean it's kind of funny thinking back now but we only had a couple of days to install a show I was thinking about the lead up to a show in hours and minutes rather than days whereas Uh I think you know maybe somebody in that position would have gotten incredibly stressed out if you're like wow we only have less than a day left and half the show isn't installed yet but it was just a kind of artist way of thinking of it will get done it just might not be done 24 hours in advance kind of thing well I've had not often but I've had work show up wet have you Mm -hmm. yeah yeah you just you just have to have like a sort of creative problem solving hat on Mm -hmm. at all times well oil painting I don't know if you know this Mr. McKinney but oil paintings can take months or even years Mm -hmm. to dry to be perfectly honest someone Mm -hmm. told me that yeah yeah that's crazy yeah (laughs) for work with really heavy impasto if you got into it i think you'd find it's pretty still pretty wet Mm -hmm. in there for some of it but acrylic dries fast but Mm -hmm. oil paint does not well our amazing photographer for our shows over the last i would say like five or six years has been alex barber and there's been numerous occasions where he would arrive to an opening 30 minutes beforehand before it opens and i'm still there kind of installing work (laughs) but it's just part of the magic of exhibitions I think because there's so much stuff that goes on behind the scenes but when someone walks into the gallery they have no idea it's like the pieces are just suspended in space with magic it's like a wedding you know nobody knows all the things you think didn't go right or Mm -hmm. there's one thing that I am not a fan of I remember having a conversation with Deborah Colton about this one time and that is there are always people who come early (laughs) there are people who come early to everything you say it's opening at five and they're there at 4.30 and you're still getting the drinks out or what? It happens every time. <laughs> I assume they know that they're running that risk, but it's the worst when we've had people coming in when things in the back room are getting installed and it just drives me crazy. Things are going to happen on their own time frame, I guess. So how old is Art League? So Art League is celebrating its 75th anniversary and so it's a pretty significant milestone. It was originally founded in 1948 and it's interesting because I've been with the organization for such a long time now, I've had the opportunity to kind of go back through our archives, which are literally these big dusty books that have cutouts from newspapers, not covered in plastic or anything like Mm -hmm. that. And it talks about at Art League's inception, it really was about 16 women kind of creating this hub where folks could come and make work, look at the work, talk about the work. But originally it didn't actually have a brick and mortar space. So it organized these art fairs. And so there's lots of articles in the archives of 
different area hotels where we were scheduling the spring art fair or the fall art right. fair. And it would basically be kind of this pop-up exhibition, both indoors and outdoors, where folks would literally bring the work that they had been working on, both indoors and outdoors. And one of the first articles I saw was at the Shamrock Hotel. So I don't think that hotel exists anymore. But when I've mentioned that hotel to folks that are proper Houston folks, they're That's like, cool. oh, my gosh, the Shamrock Hotel. I remember that. It comes up on almost every single one of our shows. <laughs> well, it opened in 49. So it, it, it would have been around. I, just found it. I love the idea. It's Women's History Month now. And here we are, 16 women that started the organization. Mm-hmm. So the roots. And I often mention this, too, that it is Women's History Month. So as we look at places like, it's not no big secret, but every civilization, every society in Houston, whether it's the first churches, the first parks, the first museums, the first theater organizations, the first libraries were all founded by women. Yay, they go were by us. women's organizations. It's the history of America. It's the yep. history of civilizations mm-hmm. because they gather and they say we want a better quality of life for our kids and for our family. Mm-hmm. And yes, it's true. They don't have the same opportunities in some respects as the men do in regards to business. So they're not they're occupied with those aspects, mm-hmm. but they don't have to get them down. They're focused on quality of life. Mm-hmm. And this is a perfect example mm-hmm. of your organization. Yeah. My uh, thesis in graduate school was about the art education at the Museum of Fine Arts at mid-century. And I drew a parallel between what they were doing at the Museum of Fine Arts in the 50s with what was going on at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. And the bridge between the two were the educational theories of Dr. John Dewey, who believed in art as experience. And I will say the Museum of Fine Arts program really held up when in comparison to the Museum of Fine Arts program. But a part of it was going all the way back to Art League Houston. And mm-hmm. I did cover all of that in my thesis. And, and a lot of those people would go on to be involved also mm-hmm. at the Museum of Fine Arts. And I'm sure today still a lot of mm-hmm. people who are involved with Art League Houston are involved in many other mm-hmm. arts organizations as well. But it performs a really important and vital role in our community. Well, I think it's interesting how Art League has sort of evolved over the years, because I think the main foundational aspects of kind of making work, talking about work, viewing artwork, that very much is still kind of a founding principle in everything that we do. But I think Art League was originally founded as a membership organization. And I think over the last 10 years, we've really been focused on accessibility and membership structures kind of put barriers in place for access. And so trying to reimagine what the role of an Art League model is today. And I think that is some of the exciting work that we're focused on right now. And so we've always had an exhibition program. We've had this Art League school that was founded in the 60s. And then we also have community engagement programs that happen throughout Houston, both on-site and off-site. And the main focus for our strategic plan, which we basically approved in 2022, was reimagining the Art League school to foster a kind of radical imagination and trying to figure out how can we offer a school that gives more access rather than paid tuition structures. So we basically started something called Flex Access a couple of years ago, and it's basically a tuition-free model of an Art League school. And I think what's interesting just in terms of nonprofit sustainability is that I think the Art League School was originally founded in part to be a revenue driver, which is kind of smart in a sense, being able to earn some revenue from what drives the mission. But I also think that the exhibition program and the community programs have evolved so much so that everything's funded through grants now. And so there are no fees associated with anything. It's all wow, about free I didn't access. Know that. Are the classes free? Well, so the classes for our community programs, they're free. So we have like a healing art program. We have Artbound, where we're basically partnering with teaching artists, and then they go into elementary schools in HISD that don't have any art teachers or art curriculum. We also work with CPAM, so it's Methodist Hospital, and so again, we work with teaching artists and pair them with technicians and folks that actually work in the medical field to provide art classes that kind of centered around stress relief and art therapy, I that kind know of that. thing. That's really great. And then we also also had a creative aging program so we worked with a community center the PV center in fifth ward and again it was kind of taking the same model where we have a huge ecosystem of teaching artists and so we basically work with them to provide all these different kind of free opportunities for art making and also kind of bringing the community together but that's all very different from our school which is we're still supporting an ecosystem of artists who have been teaching at the school longer than I've been alive but there is a fee attached to it and so got it that has 
has been obviously a barrier of access for some folks. And so over the last five years, we've really focused on ways that we can open up the school. So originally we just had classes during the day. Only a certain subset of folks can take classes during the day. Maybe they're like retired folks, you know, right. socioeconomically, they're able to have time during the day. I used to be active as a master gardener a long time ago, and that was the big criticism of that, mm-hmm. was that it, because everything was during the day, mm-hmm. it was only for people who had the luxury of not working. Exactly. And yeah. so we started having evening classes and weekend classes, and then we've just started experimenting with different ways to make the classes more affordable. And so the most recent initiative is Flex Access, which is basically we're offering classes on a pay-what-you-can fee. So the goal is for us to identify funding from grants, foundations, that kind of thing, to essentially underwrite the classes so the teachers are still receiving pay because this is part of their livelihood. But then we're also able to offer art classes to folks that maybe always wanted to take art but never had the opportunity. And now they're in their 30s or 40s and they're really wanting to take a foundational class just to see if they even like it. You know, I regularly talk to people who are interested in becoming artists, you know, as like full-time professional artists. And I know there's a lot of people out there who've become very successful being what they call self-taught. But I always say, take as many and the best art classes you possibly can, because you will learn something Mm -hmm. that you will need to. I mean, a huge part of it is even just materials. I'll be looking at something and someone will be working with like totally non-archival materials. And that's not a good practice. So I like to know what percentage of your students would you say are probably just hobby artists? That's a good question. I would say a large percentage. And I guess when I think of hobby, I think of it more as using art as a tool for community, social healing, variety of different things. And so I would say the majority of folks are within that category because we have the University of Houston, we have Glassell down the road. You want to take something that has a more academic structure to it whether it's the four-year certificate that Glassell does or whether it's actually an undergraduate or graduate course at U of H, what we're providing is more of a community-focused opportunity to come together and learn how to make art but also use art as a tool to do a variety of things, whether it's emotional, physical. I think it's an interesting thing, too, that the people who are regularly coming to your school for classes are getting the exposure of the exceptional exhibitions that you put on. So there you're showing some of the most important artists who've been in Texas. Is it Texas specific? Is it Houston specific? So with the exhibition program, it's national and local. And so when I first came on at Art League in 2011, I was just sort of researching the way that Art League selected shows and then also the way that other local art organizations were selecting shows. And at that time, we did 100% open call and it was specifically local. But I was also looking at Lawndale at that time and they were doing an open call, but that was specifically local. So basically we kind of reimagined the selection criteria to support projects that were local as well as national because we wanted to be able to pair those exhibitions together so it can kind of spark conversations between different art communities because we do have the multiple spaces. We were able to, in the main gallery, show a local artist and in the front gallery, show an artist from out of town. Another observation I made was that whenever we had three exhibitions by local artists, the opening was completely packed. It was no room at all. Whereas if we had three exhibitions from artists from out of town, it would just be like the thinnest crowd ever. Well, I can totally understand that. Our program at my gallery is we support established Houston artists. Mm. That's who we represent. And everything is always packed because they live here. And mm. I hope they have a fan base well beyond Houston. But they Mm -hmm. do have a big fan base here. And I have this belief that when you collect art and you know the artist personally, you have a very different relationship with the art than Mm -hmm. if you don't know the artist. It's a different experience. And I look at it as a real plus and Mm -hmm. a real asset. So now you do a combination. Yeah. And it's really to the benefit of the artists from out of town because they're introduced to this like huge support community that's supporting the local artists. And then also just through osmosis, conversations about the different art communities come out in the artist talks, Mm -hmm. things like that. And so it's just interesting. I think also a important principle of Art League has always been to support local artists. So that's definitely something we'll continue to do. But I think it's also to the benefit of local artists to be introduced to artists from different cities just to understand
understand what are the topics being covered and what are the national conversations going on and how does that differ or how is it similar to what's going on in Houston? All good. And what I love about Art League too is that y'all utilize your Esplanade. It's almost as colorful as what goes on inside the building. Just Mm -hmm. remind listeners, I know Heidi can chime in as well. We've driven by that on Montrose Boulevard. We've seen some of these iconic utilizations of that. I wish more nonprofits, more organizations would use that as a way to people in. I would say the Patrick Renner funnel tunnel immediately Mm -hmm. comes to mind. Well, Art League does have a history of public art because originally we did the Inversion House and so Mm -hmm. that was Havelrock Projects and that was before my time at Art League but we still get phone calls from folks being like, oh, we're in Houston, we'd love to come and see the Inversion House and I'm like, oh gosh, that went away like 15 (laughs) years ago but it was hugely iconic to so many people, even internationally. Well, they had a project, Mr. McKinney, I bet you would know on the Heritage Society campus. Yeah, that was great. The holes that were all in that little historic house and then mm-hmm. you could peek inside Beautiful. and see visual photos of years past. Mm-hmm. So just a great example. And of course, we've had them on the show. So that's wonderful too. But I think what makes Houston really interesting for public art is just the no zoning. And so I think artists like Havelrock Projects have really utilized that in the past and kind of that's what sort of sparked the funnel tunnel really because Patrick Renner was 10 years younger than Havelrock. So it was like that was his inspiration. And so when we were talking about what can Art League do that's going to tap into our history, increase our visibility on Montrose, then it was like, oh, well, public art is something that's in our history. And then we were introduced to Patrick Renner. And literally, I think it was in the space of a 24-hour period, he came up with the funnel tunnel idea. And there was like a deadline for funding at Houston Arts Alliance. And we were like, let's just do it and see what happens. (laughs) And then we were able to get the funding and kind of manifest that. But what's really interesting with the funnel tunnel is that it did kind of have a tail and the tail pointed to Art League at the end. And again, it was sort of out of this idea of trying to figure out who is Art League now, who's Art League going to be in the future. And one of the things that we kept getting feedback on was that Art League has been an institution, but we're sort of invisible, even though we're on Montrose Boulevard. And so the idea of doing public art projects is really also to help increase the visibility of the organization itself. Well, and I want to talk about Jarman Selvin's project, which people probably drive by all the time and I hope that they see that the front of the building is covered in African (laughs) beads but can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah absolutely so my previous boss Michael Peronto he's an amazing individual and he's been in Houston for a long time he lives in New Mexico now but he had moved to Art League as the executive director directly from Project Row Houses and he just had a lot of relationships with artists in Houston because he's been here for so long and so Selvin okay Keith Jarman was one of those artists and he's just an incredible fashion designer and then also just very focused on social justice projects. So Michael and Selvin know each other very well and Selvin had been originally in New York and then he wanted to move to South Africa to do more social justice projects that involve fashion. I did a studio visit with him one time and he showed me he was on like the equivalent of Project Runway Mm -hmm. but in South Africa. Yeah. Yeah, he was like huge doing very meaningful projects over there, hugely influential as it related to the beading culture. And so when he moved back to Houston, he had this amazing idea that he wanted to basically take the tradition of beading, but sort of infuse it with this contemporary approach of wrapping a building. And so one of the things that he realized when he lived in South Africa was just that the tradition or the interest of the tradition of beading was dying out. Younger folks living in South Africa didn't see the economic value in the beading culture. And so he was really really looking at ways to reimagine with new life into this sort of dying art. So originally, I think that the beads were going to be maybe at Project Row Houses, covering the different shotgun houses. There were many different iterations of where the project could be. And then when Michael started at Art League, it was like, wow, we have this crazy kind of angular shaped building. This would be like so beautiful to imagine the project here. And so that's how that started. And so the time that self and had spent in South Africa, he'd obviously built a lot of relationships there and connected us to all these different townships and this kind of craft hub throughout South Africa. And so we basically worked with the craft hub with various different beaters that essentially came to Houston as a residency. And so they would be here for a couple of months each time. And the goal was to basically build this massive tapestry that was going to wrap around the entirety of Art League. And we would host workshops so people from the community could come and 
actually be involved in the creative process of like making this public sculpture. Fabulous. Which again is something that's part of our history in terms of the funnel tunnel. It was like inviting everybody to be part of the creative process because I think with public art, sometimes it can just land in your community and feel like a spaceship and you're like, why is this here? Whereas there's a different level of investment and engagement when the community is actually invited to participate in the creative process. So basically we created the tapestries and then that's what's up on the front of the building right now. Oh, I love that. Well, Jenny, let people know how they can get a hold of you, your social media handles, your website for the organization. How can people learn more about the Art League Houston? Yeah, absolutely. So you can check out our website, which is artleaguehouston.org. You can also check us out on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Art League Houston. Please come by. We're open every single day of the week. We have three different art galleries. We have a school that basically has four different semesters that roll through. We always have exhibitions up. Our exhibitions are free. And then we have a coffee shop in the front of our building. So you can come check out some artwork, grab a coffee, great first date material. Oh, yeah. At that, you mm-hmm. see? Well, all right. Well, thank you for joining us on the Houston Hour. Mr. McKinnon, Heidi Vaughn, we're going to break for some message and come back with more of the Houston Hour on 90.1 KPFT. This is Christy Nelson, artist and author of Masked Heroes, a tribute to the frontline workers of the COVID-19 pandemic. You can find my book on Amazon.com as well as BookBaby at their bookshop at BookBaby.com. A portion of the proceeds of my book do go to the Brave of Heart Fund, which is a fund that supports the families of the loved ones from healthcare that lost their lives to COVID-19. You can check out my Instagram at Tribute to Heroes and my um, website at tributeheroes.net. Thank you for all of your support, Houston. Hey, Houston, how are you? It's Mr. McKinney with Mr. McKinney's Historic Houston and the Houston Hour Radio Show coming to you during the break. Reminding about the show we have next Friday, March 8th, 8 p.m., right here on 90.1 KPFT. We've got with us Dessa Turner. Artist Dessa Turner is going to be joining us on the show. She's also well-known because her mother was Martha Turner, iconic Houston realtor. So we're going to look forward to learning about her growing up in Houston and her art and all things Women for Houston Women History Month we're celebrating. And speaking of real estate, we have with us Jennifer Hernandez. She's a native Houstonian as well. She's the author of numerous books, and she's the owner of Legacy Mutual Mortgage and the past chairman for the Nancy Owens Breast Cancer Foundation. So it's all things Houston women on the Houston Hour the entire month of March. So do not miss out Friday, March 8th, 8 p.m. right here on 90.1 KPFT Houston. Be sure to tune in. You're listening to the Houston Hour on 90.1 FM KPFT, a Pacifica radio station. And now back to the show. And we're back from break. Well, Heidi, I am thrilled. We once again, we're kicking off the month of March and we're kicking off Women's History Month. And I knew we had to have this extremely special lady on the show because she's somebody who's got a great story to tell. And when it comes to stories, she's helped so many people become best-selling authors. And she's going to tell you about how she did that and everything else in between. I'm talking about the one and only Melanie Johnson. She's the founder of KNWS Channel 51 News back in the day. She's also a former runner-up for Miss America and <laughs> Miss Michigan. And she is the founder and CEO of Elite Online Publishing. Melanie Johnson, welcome to the Houston Hour. Thank you. You make me sound so impressive. So happy to be here. You what a are, pleasure and an you, honor. You are impressive. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Golly, we're going to have lots to talk about on this show. And thank you so much for helping us kick off Women's History Month. We just find some amazing women out there, and you're just one of them making waves every day. So let's talk about that. Well, first off, let us just know, I mentioned earlier Miss Michigan. Let people know where you grew up. So I grew up in Michigan. was there till I was about 29 years old. My whole family's from Michigan. Never thought I would leave Michigan. And most of them are still there. Yeah. And you're a Detroit person? Outside of Detroit in the mm-hmm. suburbs. Yeah. Which one? 
Farmington Hills is where I grew up. Oh, well, my best friend is from around there, and her family was big in the auto world. And I think, were you a model with cars back in the beginning yeah. of your career? That was a big thing to do in Detroit. And it was in the 80s. So let me mm-hmm. tell you, I was an auto show model, sequin dress, big hair, oh yeah, traveling the country with the microphone, doing my spiel about the cars. At the end of the day, then it was big party. We were invited to every nightclub, and 30 women would show up and take over the club. It was like an extension of college for three years for me. It was oh, really fun. fun. Wow. Mm-hmm. Fun. But that builds character and that also allows you to have that, those communication skills of captivating an audience, getting people to kind of follow your message. And I mean, if, if you can convince certain people in that type of environment, I mean, people walking around. So talk a little about that. So you leave Michigan. Where do you go? I end up in Texas, never even been to Texas. I had traveled all over the country because my brother was a collegiate wrestler for University of Michigan. And my parents would throw me in the back of the car and we drove to every single one of his meets. He's got a lot. I mean, not to make it about him, but he's a four-time All-American, three-time NCAA champ, Wrestling Hall of Fame, all of that type of stuff. Anyways, yeah, I just never thought I would leave. After the auto show stint, I realized, and Miss Michigan, I wanted to get serious about something. I couldn't be doing the auto shows for the rest of my life. It was not a career. Even though some people... People did that, and that's okay. But I just knew I had more in me, and I decided on broadcasting. So I put my feelers out to everything in broadcasting and landed a job at WXON TV 20 as a newscaster there. And then in that environment, they hired me to do their PR. Then they hired me to do produce children's shows, PSAs for them. And so I really got my feet wet in broadcasting, not just as a newscaster, but in so many different things, and also directed and was in charge of editing when I was a producer. So I really learned a lot during that time. And then the man I married was also in broadcasting. And he was looking and had filed for a TV station in Houston, Texas, and then got the rights to it. So that kind of transitioned us. And in our minds, we were like, you know, we're going to start the station, we're going to sell it in five years, and we'll just commute back and forth. And, you know, from Michigan to Houston. Yeah, from Michigan oh to goodness. Houston. It wasn't happening. So <laughs> I remember he came home one day and he'd say, What would you say if I told you I sold the house and we're moving to Texas full time? I was like, What? So that's what we did. My parents cried. I cried. And then off we were. And I kept thinking, it's going to be a five-year plan. So what is it? Like 25 years later, I'm still here. Wow. So this is the late 80s. You apply for it. You get in the 90s. 91, you moved to Houston, right? Mm -hmm. So what was Houston like back then? You know what? I have to say, Houston was one of the most warmest, friendliest places I'd ever been. Before marrying my husband, I dated someone who lived in Rhode Island. And the Northeast is a little more closed off. Mm -hmm. And I had friends and family that would come to Houston. They're like, all right, everybody's just too friendly here. Even the valet guys like, hey, how are you? Good to see you again. I mean, they're just so warm, welcoming, and friendly. And they want to support businesses. It's that wildcatter mentality. Hey, you're starting. What can we do to help support you and get behind you? So I really found it like if I had to land anywhere, I was so glad it was Houston, Texas versus like maybe some other place that wasn't as friendly. It's easy to be not from here. Yes. Well, on our show, we have lots and lots of Mm -hmm. native Houstonians, but if you're just walking around this town, people like me, not from here, you know, Mm -hmm. it's very normal. Absolutely. Now talk a little bit about starting the TV station because I don't know many people out there, especially female businesswomen, that can say that they were part of starting a I TV station. I don't know station. any people who In can our region, say that. it's not heard of. So tell people what it was like, some of the challenges of doing that. And it's interesting you say that. I think it was a couple years ago someone brought that to my attention and I never even thought of it. I never thought of it as a woman being different that no woman had ever really done this. You know, you have a piece of paper and you have to find a building. You have to buy equipment. You have to buy office furniture. You have to decorate the building. You have to hire a staff. Oh, you need a transmitter. You have to buy and build a transmitter. You have to get a tower lease with someone. I mean, there's just so many things you have to do. And we took on the challenge to be all news, local news. CNN had come out, right? And so Ted Turner and we're like, hey, maybe we could be like a local version of that. So everything was being created. And I was one of the newscasters as well. Were you just doing a newscast? I'm like, no, I was promoting the TV station. We talked earlier in the green room, like, yeah, did you do sales? Yes, I was doing trade deals. I was doing advertising deals. I even came up with a way how to get us known, right? We have tons of airtime to fill. Once it goes away, it goes away. And we weren't filling all of our airtime for sure. And charities were so big in Houston and still are. People are so giving. And so I came up with this concept that we should donate airtime. So we would donate like $10,000, $20,000 worth of airtime for a live auction item. And 
And people what would, a great idea. People would jump on it, and then if they liked it, they would stay with us as an advertiser. Plus, it gave us stage time. We'd get a free table. We would invite clients. <laughs> I mean, it was really a brilliant way to really promote ourselves and get a foothold into the community. And when nonprofits we, have marketing budgets, they, especially the mm-hmm. legacy ones we think of, the $15.5 million budgets. Yeah. A small portion does go towards marketing, most famously the Museum of Natural Sciences billboards. Yeah. They're famous for their billboard campaigns, and those aren't cheap. Yes, they get a discount, right. but it's about educating people. They can send a message out there and pay a little bit for it to pay it forward. I just love that idea. I've never heard of that as well. So we would have like Carpet Giant was one of the people who bought the package, and then they became a long-term client of ours buying airtime down the road. That's amazing. Also, too, let people know where this TV station was located at. <laughs> yeah, it was right there on West Park between Fondren and Voss Road and Hillcroft, mm-hmm. right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and eventually y'all would end up moving in the energy corridor area, right? The west side of Houston would be closer to the station, but also just to kind of the area well, in. that's where we, we were living in the energy corridor. When we first came, we really didn't know the logistics. We found a place to live before we found a building. So here we were in the energy corridor. I really didn't know the landscape of Houston, to tell you the truth. And then by the grace of God, our house flooded and we were already on the air. And then we had to move and we rented a house on Chimney Rock. And I told my husband, I am not moving back out there again. I mean, it was okay to live out there, but we were now five minutes away from the TV station. Mm-hmm. And we were always doing things socially after work. And it was just so much easier. Oh, yeah. So that's what led us to finding the house that turned into the Houston mansion. Talk about the Houston oh, we, mansion. We got we to gotta talk about that. You're, Melanie, you're known for a lot of firsts in the Houston area. Another first that you were a part of, tell people. Yeah, for building the biggest house in Houston at the time. So this house started as a 7,000 square foot house, and we were just going to do a small renovation and add like a new family room and a new master. And I don't know what happened, but one thing led to another, led to another. I remember my husband at the time was on the second floor, and they had like a stairway to an attic on the third floor. And he goes, wow, this is a great view. We should make a third floor. How much more could that cost? So then we made a whole nother third floor. Anyways, the house grew to 25,000 square feet. And then It was a remodel, so we were living in it. Then we couldn't live in it. So we ended up buying the house next door. And I just said, you know, the kitchen's neon yellow. If I can just change the kitchen and maybe do a couple tweaks. Well, then we were gutting that house, too. So we had two houses next to each other. Couldn't live in either of them. We lived in corporate housing for like six months. Oh, my goodness. And then we moved into the, I call the tree house now, that was next door to it and lived there for like three years before, almost four years before we could move into the Houston mansion. Because it was under construction for four years? Yeah, it took almost five years to finish that house. And this was on Arrowwood? Yeah. And it was because we kept stopping and starting, oh, maybe we should add a room here, or maybe we should do this. And then we traveled the world collecting artifacts and putting them into the house. We went to France four times. We went to Argentina. I was antiquing everywhere. We had Ken Lay's desk in our house, <laughs> things like that. We had Avita Perone's family crest that was the family crest of her doors in her house that were in the study. I mean, we just had things from all over. What is it? Zaza Hotel down in the museum district. Remember those big French panels? They still have oh, them the there. the old Warwick. Yes, the old Warwick. So the people who bought all that stuff for the Warwick, they had bought the home that had this warehouse full of all this stuff. And we got access, the first people to be accessed into this warehouse. So we had panels from the Warwick. I got to tell you, Melanie, I'm a credentialed fine art appraiser and I spend a lot of time in homes and I see some pretty amazing things. This is just off the charts. Oh, yeah. All kinds of crazy stuff. And I'll talk afterwards on the other how, things that were in there because we could go on for you, an hour. How long did you live there? So I lived there from, I moved in in really, I guess it was December 2005 and then moved out to 013. Mm-hmm. So about eight years. Wow. Well, I can't wait to hear more about that. And the that. funny thing was, so my kids were little at the time, right? They were born in 2000, 2001. And my oldest kept saying, Mom, we should have a house like everybody else. Like, because it was so different than the normal people. Mm-hmm. And then now that we moved out, fast forward, he's 22. And he's like, I wish we still had the mansion. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't want to miss out on the opportunity to talk about what you're doing now. Sure. So, and that house, and I think another one you turned into, rental for events or? Yeah. So what happened was in 2018 uh, or 2008, my husband and I got a divorce. And then shortly after he filed for bankruptcy, but he put everything in bankruptcy, the businesses, the building we owned for the TV station, him personally, our houses were then pending foreclosure. And it's 2008, October 2008. Hello. Nothing's selling. Everything's upside down. And it started with the Michigan house because that was a vacation area. 
And I talked to all the realtors about listing it for rent. And they're like, you want too much money. It's never going to rent. You could sleep 32 people in that house. It was mm. 15,000 square feet. And you'll never rent it. So a realtor rented it for one week that next summer. And VRBO had just come out. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, I'm going to list it on VRBO. Did my research. Did all that. I rented that house for the entire summer for anywhere from ten dollars to $12,000 a week for 12 mm-hmm. weeks. So that was the start. And I thought, huh, I wonder if I could do that in Houston. And in Houston at the time, there was only like apartments, some condos listed. And here, a 25,000 square foot house. I remember the first time I rented it, I was like, it hasn't rented yet. And I thought, but are you ready to rent it? If someone booked your house today, is it ready for someone to come in and rent it? And I was like, no. So How I many went, rooms? Oh, that house. You know, it was just big rooms. It was like typical rooms of a house, but they were just giant size. But the type of folks that might rent this particular house for a week or for a month or for yeah. even a weekend. High end. High end. people. So right? what was the asking price? What was it based on? What was, give yeah, us an idea. So like for the first weekend I did was $10,000 for the weekend. Yeah. So um, it's a very specific kind of person. Yeah. I had a, I'm trying to think, a guy from South Africa who was high up and he came in for cancer treatments mm-hmm. and rented it for $50,000 a month. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're talking about 2010, right? Yeah. So yeah, that was yeah. a lot at the time. And then, but that turned into, I don't know, someone asked me to do a wedding there and the house was perfect for that because I could close off all the private areas for a wedding or an event. And then the photographer was like, would you consider doing photo shoots here? So I was doing photo shoots. I was doing events and I was doing rental. And so both houses were doing six figures. And that's how I survived during that time, during the pending foreclosure. But then I laughed. The houses eventually got foreclosed on and then I was unemployed, right? And homeless. I had to find a new place to live. <laughs> Start over. <laughs> that from sounds there. like a really challenging time. It was interesting. I started doing urban redevelopment and that was going pretty good because fracking was big at that time. And so we're talking like 2012, 2013. And then all of a sudden it died and that went upside down. But I was always really fascinated, not with television anymore. People saying, aren't you going to go back into broadcasting? I said, Mm -hmm. no, I just think it's a dinosaur. I think anybody can be on YouTube now and have their own TV station. You know, and I do podcasts and I have a YouTube channel now. So I was really educating myself about that and came across these conventions that happened and workshops and some of the same people would attend over and over again and met a gal, Jen Foster there. We were both divorced and... She was having her kids, wasn't having her kids the month of June, and neither was I. And we said, we should do something. She goes, we should go to your villa in the Dominican Republic. And this is Jen Foster. Jen Foster, yes. I said, yeah, that sounds fun. But she's like always thinking, well, we should make money. Like, we can't just go and have fun. We can have fun, but we can make money at the same time. So we both learned how to publish there. We both had published a couple books for ourselves. And we came up with the idea, let's do a book writing retreat. So Jen's background is website development. And so on the breaks, she created a website for us. We did a Facebook page. Canva had just come out. So we came up with a logo and branding. We did videos during the breaks. And poof, we had a company during the breaks of this convention. And we got some people to come down to the villa for the book writing retreat. We launched their books and they became bestsellers. And next thing I knew, people were saying, hey, Melanie, can you go to lunch with me? I didn't know that you publish books. Well, let's go back because you said something real quick. How did they become bestsellers? Oh, that's a whole nother conversation. So I'll tell you, let's get into that. So there's a lot of different things that go into making your book a bestseller. I always say like, let's break it into two categories. There's the marketing side and then there's writing a great book side, right? So on the marketing side, it's having a great title having a great subtitle with keywords that people can find your book and tell you what your book is about. Because some people, you have your book title and it might be one or two words, but I don't really know what I'm getting from the book. So you really need that subtitle to say, this is the benefit, this is the problem that I'm solving. And Amazon will then click into that and say, oh, someone's looking for this, even if the word's not in your title. Like let's say your book is called Layers, but well, layers of what, right? Layers of a thought leader, layers of becoming an art dealer of all the different things you have to know. So you need to know the problem, the solution needs to be in the subtitle. Book description is used. Having all the keywords and the right book description, making that the way it's supposed to be. And then the secret sauce on the marketing side, which is really kind of the publishing side, is making sure you have the right categories on Amazon and on Ingram. Ingram's another distributor. So you need the right keywords and the right categories that you're going to be in there to help get it. Now, Amazon has changed so much. We used to be able to get 10 to 15 categories per book. And now they're like, nope, not letting you do that anymore. Even traditional publishers couldn't get that. So we knew how to do that. Now they're saying, "Mm, 
we're cutting you all off. You're only getting three categories now. So it makes it a little bit harder to hit bestseller because you have less chances. You're in less categories. And is bestseller also just about selling a number of books? Like that's really what it's about too. It's how they measure it, or we measure it. Sometimes you sold a hundred thousand books, or ten thousand books, or a million right. books. So on Amazon, anywhere from a hundred books to five hundred books can get you to be bestseller, depending what category you're in. Uh, but like recently, last week, and we work with other publishing houses because they don't know how to do what we do. So we just worked with Covenant House, and theirs was a little jinky because they weren't the following. nonprofit Covenant House that we know up here. In no, New no, or? the Covenant House Press, which Press, is okay. a publishing company, and they weren't following what we needed to do. Like they were a little slow and didn't change the price and this and that. And this author sold 920 books and didn't hit number one, right? He was on bestseller list. So there's other parts of being bestseller list, hot new release list, you can be number one or hit the list versus number one in a specific category, right? So that's the difference. Now, if you want to be Wall Street Journal USA Today bestseller list, which we do and we guarantee that, you have to sell anywhere between eight to 12,000 books in a week. So that's a lot more. Does it matter which week? Is it the first week coming out or does it matter? It doesn't really matter. Okay. We like it when the book is first launching within mm-hmm. that first 30 days when the book is launching to do it then. And same with Amazon. We relaunch people's books all the time for them to give them like a kick in the pants, but there's strategies to do that and make sure that we're doing it right. So Amazon, the campaign runs for about, we used to say 24 to 48 hours, but now we're saying that that's being extended because we know based on our data that we should have hit a bestseller list or a number one and and Amazon just hasn't updated. Like It's like hitting the slot machine. It's like, ring it for Pete's sakes. You know, let it go so we can see where they are on the ranking, even though we know internally where they should be. Amazon's not showing it yet. But is there some kind of a pay opportunity too, to where if you take a little less profit on this end, you get boosted up? Sometimes platforms play that kind of scenario. Where... Yeah, Amazon doesn't really play that necessarily. Okay. And then the other part is really to have a successful launch is engaging your list, right? We engage our list and we engage all the things that we have have that we do for an author. But the other real important thing is if you don't tell everyone you have a book that knows you, well, what good is that? It's like hiding under a rock. It's like you have a beautiful gallery here. You have a great bus. But if no one knows that you do that, how are they going to book you? How are they going to come in and buy a piece of art? They have to know who you are and what you offer. So you need to share that and then ask those people to share it to the people they know that makes the circle bigger, right? That's the key to part of it of doing that. Then the writing part is, and you and I were kind of having this discussion. So I'm going to get in the weeds just a little bit here. On the writing part is you need to know what your book is going to do for your business. Have a purpose, especially for this nonfiction book. Like your book shouldn't just be this ethereal book. It should have something that drives revenue. Like you have to decide, gosh, if I want to be a speaker or I want to be a consultant, then the content of that book has to drive business where you could send that book to someone and they would become a client because you sent that book to them. It has that kind of impact. So you want to make sure you do that. The introduction's really important. Have someone wonderful or noteworthy or someone who has a big following that can do your introduction for you because then you know that they're going to share it because they're very proud. They're part of this book, right? That's going to help. So that's very important. And the book shouldn't start off, I would was born in 1962 and blah, blah, blah. That's boring. You want to have a hook when you're there. You want to have something. Coach Roynell Young, he's here locally in Houston. We did help him with his book. His first chapter starts out with him having a heart attack. We didn't bury that in the middle of the book, right? It's Then you want to know what happened after the heart attack. How did he recover from the heart attack, right? It gets you interested. The other thing is your table of contents should answer the questions. It should address the problems and the solution in the table of contents, right? Are you struggling with marketing? Do you feel like your marketing sucks? Could be chapter one. Oh, this is what you should do for it, you know? And then underneath that, have some of the solutions in there. Because how many times you look at a book, you look at the table of contents is one of the first things you look at. You look at maybe the first chapter, the first page. You might look at the back of the book. So the book description is really important as well back there. And if they're not captured by your title, subtitle, the book description, I mean, the key is have them grab the book because they are attracted to it, compel them to open it and see those other things that's going to grab their attention. And did I read that you have 3,000 authors? We have published 3,000 books. 3,000 books. Mm -hmm. And what are the kinds of topics? 
Oh my gosh. And we do children's books and fiction books as well, but mostly nonfiction. So we did Laura Murillo's book. Her book is oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, President of Hispanic Chamber of Commerce. That's a big deal. Yeah. Hers is on diversity and inclusion. And we worked with her on her book entirely. We did Jamie Roots, the president of the Texans. Um, Houston Texans. That's a big deal too. So, and of course, Rhino Young, who I just mentioned, we did hers. These are local people that we have, but we've done other people. So those are just some of the highlights here in, in yeah. Houston. And like I said, you can do this anywhere all over the nation, all over the world, but and it's nice yeah. to have, and you yeah. do, but it's so nice to have people that are locally in, in regards to the press opportunities of getting them out there and then right. really connecting with them. Well, and I think how fun if it's something that you're thinking about doing and then, oh, you can combine it with a trip to the Dominican Republic. <laughs> that, that sounds pretty cool. <laughs> you know, the funny thing is we never have done another book writing retreat and people still say, are you still doing those retreats? Can I go on a retreat? So we are toying with doing another one, but we might do it in Miami. We'll see. So we're thinking about doing that. Wow. That'd be great. <laughs> oh my goodness. See, you heard it here, folks. You can start signing up. Now also too, what are some things that you learned from this whole process? I, I call it your second act because you've done so much on the broadcasting side and then all yeah. over. But what's, what are things that you've learned from this whole process that you didn't know before that are a little bit shocking or a little bit interesting that people should know about? Oh my gosh, just never give up the tenacity. And yeah. as many times as you think, okay, like I'm not in real estate anymore, that went upside down. It's just having that and riding the flow, knowing you're going to be okay and taking action. I can't stress that enough. Making an action plan. Hey, like if you're I don't know what I'm doing. I just got fired from my job. You know, making a list. Well, what are my skills? What am I good at? What can I step into? That's a great way to settle down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you're upset is to just start making a plan or figure, trying to figure something out. Well, this must have been very inspiring for your boys watching you go through all this. What do they do? So my youngest is a brainiac. His brain doesn't think like mine at all. He's a physics major. Mm-hmm. So my conversations with him are entirely different. I may hold up this cup of water and he'll start saying, you know, plastic, the derivative of plastic and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah, okay. And I'm, and the other one I would say takes after me, he launched an NFT when NFTs were really big, non-fungible token right. that sold out in three minutes for $3.2 million. Wow. And now he has a big marketing agency. He employs 120 people at the Holy age of 23. Wow, In Houston? In Houston, yeah. What's it called? It's not like an umbrella of everything. He owns a company called Clipper that does really well. And he owns several Instagram. Instagram account. So it's really broad of what he does. But yeah, he's doing really well. They're very proud of him. Yeah. And he's doing real estate investment. So we've got him set up of, you know, I was telling him no lazy money. You got to have money out there working for you and have diversity. So he's got four rental properties right now already at 23. Holy cow. Yeah. Well, he is a chip off the old block. Yeah, he is. Definitely. (laughs) He's giving me advice now. No, mom, you don't do it that way. What are you doing? Do this. So and speaking of connecting people to and, and doing great things, let listeners know how do we meet because this is pretty exciting. You're part of a group. It's a kind of a special group, if you will. Yes. Tell us about it a little bit. So it's called the Connectors Group. It's really kind of a small, intimate group of about 25 people. And we're all like-minded. And we're all people who want to come together. And one of the special things I love about this group is you go to different connecting groups and then you sit at a table for lunch or whatever and then you leave. And maybe you talk to the person next to you. Or everyone says what they're doing. This one really encourages you to have one-on-ones outside. So every month, till the next meeting, you should have two or three people that you've met for coffee, had a one-on-one, how can I serve you? What are you looking for? And really get to know them much more on a personal level. Because otherwise, some of these groups tend to be kind of surface oriented. And this one is really great that it's really connected on that personal level. Yeah, it was a pleasure speaking to your group about Houston history. People were Mm -hmm. just captivated and asking really good questions. We had a mixture of native Houstonians and longtime Mm -hmm. Houstonians like yourself that knew lots of things about our city's past. And it was just such a pleasure. Larry Barton, of course, the one that got me involved with that and our mutual buddy. Michael Wiesenthal is a friend of the show and just so excited to have all these great, amazing people in there. Now, let listeners know where they can get a hold of you, your social media handles, your website, all that great stuff. Sure. So you can always go to EliteOnlinePublishing.com if you're interested in being an author and checking us out. There's an author submission button there. You can go right there. You can find me, Melanie C. Johnson, on Instagram. And we have a podcast, Elite Expert Insider, and also another podcast called Elite Publishing that you can check us out. We're everywhere. We have a podcast, YouTube channel. We're all over social media. I'm there as well. So check us out at all those places. Melanie Johnson helping us kick off Women's History Month and doing great things. So folks, go out there, like and follow and be a part of all this energy and action. And if you've ever wondered about doing your own book, you know a person now in the business that can help guide you through all of that. Well, folks, we are going to hand it over now. Thanks for listening to Houston Hour with Mr. McKinnon and Heidi Vaughn. And thanks for joining us, Melanie. Thank you. Maybe it's something in the air. 
Maybe the leaves in the autumn That keep me coming back here I'm a Michigan girl Raised in the shade of the white pine Walk the trails of the porcupine Proud to call this home been listening to the Houston Hour with Mr. McKinney and Heidi Vaughn. Tune in right here on 90.1 FM KPFT. Stay connected with us on Facebook and Instagram at the Houston Hour and on Twitter at the HOU Hour and the number one. We always welcome show ideas and listener feedback at the Houston Hour at gmail.com. And you can listen to this show and past archived shows at kpft.org. Till next week, Houston. Good news, good planet, good news. It's time now for your good news for a good planet. The Hired Hooves. 2021 was another record-breaking wildfire season. Climate change, cycles of drought, and unmanaged vegetation in western U.S. forests resulted in bigger and more destructive fires. A major factor in big fires is excessive shrubbery, grasses, and bushes that can serve as the starter kindling for an inferno. Enter the ungulates and experts in the field of conspicuous consumption, goats and sheep. A small but growing industry of fire prevention livestock businesses like Colorado's Goatapelli and Virginia's Goatbusters are leading the pack with their traveling herds of fire suppressors.